Welcome to Season 8 of the Leadership Educator Podcast, your source for knowledge and expertise on facilitating leadership learning. Passionate about leadership education? You want to expand your resource toolbox with practical teaching, learning, and program design strategies? This is the podcast for you. If you haven't done so already, please hit subscribe so you'll never miss an episode. Welcome to the Leadership Educator Podcast. I'm Dan Jenkins, Professor of Leadership and Organizational Studies at the University of Southern Maine. And I'm Lauren Bullock, Assistant Professor of Instruction at Temple University. So in our eighth season, we're focused on research and scholarship in our field. We're talking to researchers, scholars, peer reviewers, editors, co-editors. We're looking for all of the folks that can help us paint this picture of where leadership education scholarship is going and a little bit of where it's been. So we're asking all of our guests this penultimate question, where should leadership educators go for research? Yeah, Lord, and in today's episode, so we're excited. We've invited back a friend of the podcast, a very prolific leadership scholar, uh, Dr. Nathan Eva. He's an associate professor and Fulbright scholar as well, and the co-director of engagement for the Department of Management at the Monash Business School in Australia. The name sounds familiar. As I said, it's because Nathan has joined us before. He was uh, with us in season five. At that time, he and his colleague, Katrina Johnson, uh, they were sharing with us a bit about the creation of an indigenous leadership program um, at his home school there at Monash. And so welcome back to the show, Nathan. Thank you so much, Dan. Uh, appreciate being back on. I know I've got a, a few more episodes to go before I catch up to Dave Roche. <laughs> I think I, we were joking in a recent, or an episode that's about to, to come out at the time of recording this. I think Kathy Guthrie is our Alec Baldwin or Steve Martin of the, uh, the Leadership uh-huh. Educator Podcast world, but who knows? Who knows? You might catch up uh, Might catch up quickly. So, But we're super excited to have you back. And I was just loved being able to, to see you and meet your wife back last October when you were uh, on the tail end of your Fulbright across the, the U.S. visiting, what did you say, was it 27 states or something like that? Um, Made it that- to 27 and quite a few in yeah. Canada as well. Yeah. And so spent some time with us in Maine and, and over at the University of Southern Maine, got to make sure you... I got to enjoy lobster rolls, <laughs> was able to enjoy a bit of Maine lobster, which was fantastic. Maine is an absolutely lovely place if you haven't been there. So why did we invite back Nathan? As Lauren was sharing about our focus this season, so one of the things we really wanted to make sure to cover, and I think that Nathan can really share with our audience, is to bring somebody on that really is a as a seasoned scholar who's established quite the research agenda and publishing record thus far in, in a relatively short career span thus um, so far to drop and share some knowledge with our listeners today on how he was able to do that. What was that journey? What was that that path um, that he took. And he shared some of this with a workshop that he did with some of my graduate students when he was visiting Portland, Maine back in October. And I really, really loved the presentation. In fact, you know, I I found myself going, what? I didn't know that. I I got out my notebook and started taking notes and definitely challenged some of my assumptions that I had about some of the different phases of the research process. And also, um, if you want to learn a little bit more about Nathan, check out that episode that we had him on uh, back in in season five, did share a little bit about his origin story, if you will. Uh, but you can definitely check out a little bit more about Nathan on LinkedIn or on his university website and 
And also he is co-chairing the Leadership Education Academy this year and has been a facilitator with us since 2019. And like Lauren, uh, was an attendee at one point as well back in 2017, when Lauren attended in 2021, right? Um, virtually? Yes. In any case, so a lot about Nathan. Um, anything, you, any fact-checking uh, you want to do before I, before we fire away and, and get you all riled up? <laughs> Let's jump in, Dan. Awesome. So, well, I'll ask the first question. Um, so one of the things that we have talked about in a couple of episodes before this is really like, how do you establish your research agenda? So like, I know I'm working on my dissertation. I actually tentatively have a, a dissertation defense, um, my proposal defense date scheduled. And so thinking about kind of your beginnings, how did you choose your research agenda and what you wanted to study? It's a really, really good question because there's... It depends a little bit of where you've come out of your PhD program from. If you've walked out and you've got a very clear identity that I'm a leadership and gender scholar, or I'm an authentic leadership scholar, or I am a leadership and uh, leadership educator scholar, you've got a very, very clear identity and you can start to build the research in that way. I was still struggling with that when I, when I left. I knew that I was really interested in servant leadership. I knew I wanted to do a lot more leadership education stuff, but I hadn't really had that exposure throughout my PhD. So I was very, very lucky to be able to pick up a tenure track job. And really a big part of me getting that tenure track job was being a very good educator. Uh, I had I had a um, uh, one publication, which I know at the mar- in the market the way it is right now is probably not enough. Um, but that was able to get me through the door and really try and sell that educator brand name. As I went through those first couple of years, it was then starting to work out what do I really like doing. So anyone who looks at my record, uh, it was described to me by one of my associate deans as a little bit of a scattergun uh, in the first couple of years, which sort of made sense because I was trying to keep my job. Uh, I wanted to make sure that I was able to get tenure. I was able to you know, put food on the table. And so when a paper came past my desk, I was like, of course, I'm going to do this. Of course, I'm going to do this. Of course, I'm going to do this. And maybe got a little overcommitted. But it allowed me to play in a lot of different areas. Uh, so it allowed me to, for example, um, I got asked, do you want to work on a career optimism um, systematic review? I've never worked in uh, vocational behavior before. I don't have an idea of that um, that field, but at that time, it's like, it's a really nice team. It's a good people. I'm going to get involved. And what ended up coming from that was a stream of research around leadership and careers and leadership and vocational behavior that I wouldn't have gotten into otherwise. Uh, so taking those sorts of opportunities as I was able to get closer towards um, our version of tenure, it then became about trying to find those links. So how do I um, bring this all together? And for me, servant leadership was still a part of that because I really did care about that in terms of the field. And then also on that flip side, again, that sort of leadership education. So how are we developing that next generation of leaders? And so I could try and find those links, tenuous at times, between different papers that I was able to pull together to make that case. Once I felt a little bit more secure in my employment and what I was doing, it then became a lot easier to select the projects that I really wanted to work on um, and that were going to have the biggest impact in the field. Um, I think at times we can get we can get a little bit too hung up on, especially when older, older researchers or older scholars say to us, well, you know, 
what is this piece actually adding to the field? You know, what what is this actual contribution, publication for publication's sake? That's great, but that's the system that we've walked into. It's a system that they've created. So we, while I don't want to perpetuate that sort of system of creating knowledge for knowledge's sake, but talking to young faculty, keeping your job, you know, keeping your job, keeping the income is keeping keeping the income coming through is very very important. And you never know with those sort of projects where they can lead. Um, so I'll go, sorry, I'm, I'm going on a little long here, Lauren, but the last thing I would just say there is also, it's a little bit of understanding what you need for that particular tenure process. Um, I know that, you know, I would have loved an Academy of Management Journal article, uh, or, you know, I would have loved a, uh, a science or a, nat a nature, something, something like that. But I also know that for my institution, that's not something that's required for tenure. Things like the Leadership Quarterly Journal of Organisational Behaviour, um, Human Resource Management, General Management Studies, all of those journals are really, really great journals. Um, and they're recognised by, um, by my institution. And so focusing in on there and going, this, you know, this is where the conversation's happening. This is where, this is the conversation I want to enter. These are the people I want to be conversing with. That makes that a lot easier. And I was able to target what I was doing to, again, make sure that I've got a job in 12 months time. You know, I love that you shared that because, well, one of the things I was thinking about was where kind of did these systematic reviews come from? The, the servant leadership one made sense. The career, opti career optimism, that one sounded really interesting. Um, but it makes sense because it, it feels like you have one foot in like the practical, like I need to keep my job or work towards tenure track. And these are the parameters that they have outlined for me. But then if I take care of that, then I can pursue these other passion projects or just work with people I want to work with. And you talk, I know you talked a little bit about that in your presentation, like, you know, just how do you establish, you know, kind of who you want to work with? So it's nice that it kind of comes out of that research agenda. Um, it also, though, reminds me of something Corey Seemuller said. So we had her on a long time ago to talk about the, the about LEA. But one of the things she said was in her space, she's got two very different interests in terms of research, and she just has been fortunate enough to pursue them both. So I, it almost dispels this idea that you have to focus on one question or one thing, but it really kind of broadens that that space so that you can live in a couple of different places as you're developing your research path. And what I would say here is that it is going to be different for everyone. Uh, I know that when I'm working with my grad students now is trying to set them up uh, and really focusing and honing in on that identity. So when they hit the job market, they can say, listen, I am becoming a, a world leading scholar in X so that they're absolutely ready. There's a very clear, uh, clear pipeline. There's a very clear researcher identity. Um, in saying that, not everyone, one, wants that or two, is fortunate enough to be able to, um, to find that path um, early on in their academic journey. And I think that Corey's a great example. She's a world leading scholar in multiple different areas. Um, and it's just, you know, more power to her and more strings to her bow. Yeah, it's interesting to think about folks like, I mean, you know, and I mentioned this on a recent episode of the podcast that Corey was somebody I was reading during my, when I was writing my dissertation and it was like, oh my gosh, now I'm getting opportunities to work with her. But seeing, you know, it's folks that paved different parts of the field for others to follow. And definitely to your, to your point too, Nathan, like what someone's research agenda may not be right for somebody else's. And, you know, both to think about, yes, right. I had a mentor that told me, you know, early on, Dr. Susan McManus over at, in Tampa, she was the uh, thesis advisor for my master's degree in political science. And she said, when you start the tenure process, she's like, respond to every call for proposal 
in the world, every single one that comes across your desk. And I, you know, I listened to a lot of that early on because it was just like, there's some fear, right? In that and keeping the job and, and the tenure track and you hear horror stories. And I mean, I will say that I was not in like a dog eat dog type of department or but I'm also not in a research one or an AAU institution, right? While scholarship is valued very, very highly, and you're not going to get tenure at my institution if you don't publish, things like teaching and service are also valued and not dismissed. Um, I know don't, don't want to point out any particular institutions, but stories I've heard, you know, and so as I was thinking about I definitely got feedback from my peer review committees around what are your themes? Make sure to focus. Can you get it down to like two or three themes? And I was able to really look at teaching and learning and pedagogy and and leadership education and and focus on that. I later expanded when I went up for full professor on focusing more on like the professional identity of the leadership educator and even more so like professional development of leadership educators, which were not things that to your point, Nathan, that I had. I guess, time for or could focus on because I didn't have the flexibility or the the safe net, I guess, of, of having the tenure track job. And so I think that those things are, are evolutionary for sure. Ben is absolutely right there. It is an institution by institution situation. Know your institution. Uh, the amount of PhD, uh, grad PhD students who are coming into their first tenure track role and go, okay, what do you need for tenure? And like, uh, I don't know. I'm gonna, no, you, you need to ask those questions. You need to know what the um, what what the playing field is. You don't want that changing on you in year three, in year four, in year five. Being very clear, have that in writing. What do I need to do to achieve tenure here? Or what do I need to do to achieve uh, the professorship here? Because for some institutions, it is going to be identity, identity, identity. Other institutions, it might be a box ticking exercise. Other institutions, it might be, as Dan saying that, what is your contribution to the um, broader field, not just in the research side? So really making sure that you're knowing what you're getting yourself into and where those goalposts are. Yeah. No, that's, I really appreciate that. And and so I, one of the things that I, that I learned from you for sure, and I'd be curious because again, this is a different, this experience is different. And has, as we kind of make our own meaning of not only the tenure and promotion process and, and, and the environment that's kind of created for us, but also some of our experiences early on with submitting to conferences, but I guess more to more focus even more specifically for this conversation, some of those early experiences writing and submitting manuscripts to peer reviewed journals. You definitely, again, uh, not to belabor this, but you you shared some things that were not on my radar and were different than my experience, but certainly you've been able to be successful as a part of your journey. I, I'd love if you'd share a little bit about you know, this, some of the things you shared with my students around corresponding with journal editors and some of the more collegial than I had, I guess, anticipated processes with like, I think you mentioned specifically like the Journal of Applied Psychology, Leadership Quarterly, maybe a couple other journals within the Academy of Management are, are definitely associated with more like business schools or, or management programs, which you kind of have one foot in both, right? You, you're in a business school, but you're absolutely contributing to the field of leadership studies and leadership education. Thanks, Dan. Uh, yes. So, <laughs> so one of the things, and I might even contradict myself a little bit here from the from the last answer. So, when I was talking about um, coming in, uh, when I started coming in early, I probably, if we talk about journey journal hierarchies, and there's multiple different lists out there: um, Financial Times, Fifty, UT Dallas, Cabs, Camargo. Um, ABDC because I'm Australian. Uh, there's in each in institution has its own list as well. And so I, out of that 
a little bit of that fear was going, okay, this is, you know, I'm going to go for good journals, but not those really great top tier journals. And I was finding that they were okay. I was able to pitch into that journal and probably, you know, maybe get rejected the first time, be able to get into the second journal. Um, spending more and more time at R1 universities across um, the States, uh, across China and the UK, listening to how their programs function, which was, you know, we're going for with everything we're designing is for the top tier journal. And so for management, something like Academy Management Journal, um, Administrative Science Quarterly, the like, because if it doesn't get there, then you hope to go in that sort of next rung down. I was always of the belief, who am I to be able to publish in those journals? Who am I to waste somebody's time to go and review that? And so it wasn't, it wasn't until really in the last couple of years, um, during our, our lockdown, so what, 2020, um, that started going, okay, I think I've got some pretty good ideas here. I'm going to start to send send them through. Um, and the one that Dan's referencing there was it was my first submission to the Journal of Applied Psychology. And this is like six years after I've started um, tenure. So anyone who's listening to this is probably um, from management schools going, Nathan, what are you doing? Why'd you wait that long? Yeah, I know. Um, and I got this just amazing um, feedback from the journal around it and really lovely crafted email from the ed, um, from the associate editor. And I responded back saying, you know, listen, thank you so much. This is the first time, you know, submitting to JAP. This is, you know, um, like this feedback has been wonderful. The email I got back was a little bit unexpected, which was, hi, Nathan, what do you mean this is the first time? I, you know, I've been reading your work, the, you know, the, the quality of this work, you should have been submitting here. I want you, everything that you're doing to be submitting to me from now on, um, that this, this, is, this is why we're here. We're here to develop the field. Um, and I know that when I was uh, submitting to Academy Management Journal over the last couple of years, the level of feedback, just the care and kindness from the reviewers and the review team um, around the developmental nature. And I remember getting a review back earlier this year and just going, geez, this reviewer knows my work better than I do. Um, and what that means is if I'm getting really good feedback on my pieces, I can strengthen them, take those to the next level. And also when I'm designing the next piece, um, they can be developed further and further. The other part around this is making use of the different workshops and conferences that journals run. So uh, we're just using the Academy Management here. They run, it's about every month, they've got a different journal workshop at different places around the world where you're submitting a manuscript and you're getting feedback from the actual editors of that journal on your work to help shape it to be able to get it, whether it's published there or somewhere else. And I think about some of these workshops that I've gone to that while um, I, the piece hasn't gotten up into AM, Academy Management Journal, for example, it's gotten up into another really high ranking journal. Um, a piece that we workshopped for the Academy Management Learning and Education, a piece on gender and leadership, um, leadership education. Uh, we got really good feedback on that and decided not to go with um, Academy Management Learning and Education and to go to Leadership Quarterly for that one because we felt that was gonna make more sense for a home. But the process with Leadership Quarterly was so much quicker and easier because we already got such high quality feedback to rectify a lot of those issues. Um, the thing that I've really learned over the last two to three years is that <laughs> associate editors, especially, especially, especially at these sort of um, really top, top tier journals, they love what they do and they're only there to be developmental. They wouldn't 
they wouldn't be volunteering their time otherwise, and they want to help this field grow. And especially if we think about um, leadership associate editors in, say, top management journals or education journals or psychology journals, they have a vested interest in your work because you're a leadership scholar too. They want to see more leadership work published in these top tier journals. And so they want you to be sending, um, sending your work there. Yeah. You really kind of demystified some of that process for definitely for our graduate students who, you know, many of them have, have never been a part of the peer review process, except perhaps maybe as part of a conference, but are, you know, working on getting some of that stuff. And, you know, it's interesting, you, you know, you, you share that. I mean, we've, we had some of the editorial teams from thus far this season, Journal of Management Education, Management Teaching Review, Journal of Leadership Education, Journal of College Activities and Practice. I mean, and all of them echo exactly what you're, you're sharing, you know, like editors are people too, right? <laughs> they, they care about the the field and, and developing the field, it's not just, you know, they didn't take on that role to be a gatekeeper, right? That's not the spirit of, of how they fell into those roles. And I think that's, and that's one of the reasons too, that we, we asked them, you know, how, how did you end up as an editor for the journal, whatever, you know, management education or leadership education, because it's all the journeys were really folks either being mentored and, or caring a lot about the development of their field. And you're, affirming that. And it's interesting to hear that that is also the case, even when you're getting into some journals that if you care about these things or whatever, you know, higher impact factors or journals that are on some of the short lists of, of certain business programs or what have you of, hey, it'd be really great if you uh, published in one of these journals, if you want to get tenure type of thing. Um, and not all institutions have lists like that, but, you know, but to your all's points before of like, you know, know what your institutions need uh, or expect from you um, both when you're interviewing, you know, or, or on the job hunt, but also, you know, once you've been hired and are starting that tenure process. And again, we're, we're speaking specifically just about faculty on the tenure track, but that I think too, demystifying that process for folks that are in more practitioner roles or non-tenure track roles, clinical roles, lecture roles, this is much more collegial than maybe you had thought, because it certainly challenged my assumptions. And just having those conversations early. So it might be emailing particular associates say, hey, listen, I've got this idea for a particular article that I'm starting to work on. Um, is this going to make sense for this particular, is this particular journal? And you'd be surprised at how many of them will actually respond back um, and say, hey, listen, this is, this is really good. Or, you know, have you thought about X, Y, and Z? Now, while everyone is a little bit busy, one of the things I really love about the leadership space is everyone is actually just a really kind human being. There's not many people that we come across in this space who are out there to get you. So they are there to help develop. And so things, again, things like conferences are going to be really, really um, useful here to help build um, build your research um, and uh, friendly reviews as well. If you've got if you've got faculty, friends, relatives, next door neighbors who are on journal editorial boards, getting them to do reviews of your piece before you submit will make the process so much easier. You know, I wish we had an intern or someone to go back through and kind of pull out all of these gems that you're dropping on us and put it into how to how to do the thing, um, how to do the publishing thing, because, you know, you shared so many different elements and I, I feel like I have a comment for both or all of them. So the first thing I'll share is you're spot on when you talk about institutions vary. So I know in my college, I'm in a communication school, there's one association that all of the powers that be go to. And so if I'm not presenting there or writing or contributing in that space, I might not, you know, get on their radar. But for me coming in, one, nobody has said that, 
Um, and two, I would have not, I would be like, oh, well, that's not where my people are. Like, let me go over here where my people are. So you just kind of like sparked a little bit in me to, to go out into this space. Um, the other thing I, I think is important is who you're connected to matters in your process. So if you talked about the associate editor being developmental, you talked about the scholars that you wanted to co-author uh, with. And it's like, it's very important that we not just build relationships, but build intentional relationships. And again, our editors have talked about that at a very high level, but you're in here kind of like, well, if this person reviews it before you submit it, like an old journal editor, and, and you're getting all these feedbacks, like you're really getting into the nuts and bolts of those relationships, which is super helpful um, for folks that aren't familiar in this space. Um, the last thing, and I say this as an NTT faculty, when I was coming in, I knew I was being hired for non-tenure, but I said, oh, I'll do some research for sure. And my, 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 in the hiring process, they're like, you don't have to do that. Like, if you want to, we welcome it. And I'm at a R1. If you want to, we welcome it, but you don't have to do that. Fast forward five years later, my teaching partner, we share an office. He's in a SOTL program for our, our scholarship of teaching and learning, for those who don't know SOTL, he's in a program and it doesn't matter what you're, if you're tenure or non-tenure, it's a writing program for anybody interested in that kind of scholarship. And they've tailored it to how do you teach your discipline better? And five years ago, I, 10 years ago when I started, they weren't even trying to train adjuncts. So it's nice that there's this kind of fluidity to the non-tenure space, especially as those folks are growing in um, their, in being full-time faculty and teaching. So, so many comments, but one thing I do want to go back to is the researcher identity. And, and I'd love to hear a little bit more about where that came from. And then kind of, how would you describe your researcher identity? It's a really, that's it's a big question, Lauren. It's a big question. Uh, so in terms of how would I describe my researcher identity, um, I talk about it as try, a little bit of trying to make better leaders. Um, and I do this in two main ways. One is pushing against our prototypical ways of thinking about leadership. Um, and so one of the ways of doing this is through a lot of follower first leadership approaches and servant leadership. And I know that people will uh, out there and in podcast land will say, oh, that's a fairly mainstream leadership style. I know, I know, but, um, and the second, the second way is uh, through leadership education as well. So non-prototypical leadership education is trying to push the envelope um, through there as well. So that is essentially how I would describe my researcher identity. How I, how I got to that is, is a lot of looking back rather than looking forward, um, which is probably not the best way of doing it. Um, but it was through what am I enjoying doing most? Um, we could all be go doing lots of different things. Um, and I think back when I was a consultant and my, my senior manager used to always say to me, you know, we're not curing cancer, we're not saving babies. Um, and absolutely, I'm not good at med, I'm not curing cancer and I'm not saving babies. But maybe I can make those um, those labs better places to work um, to be able to help people cure cancer and save babies. I work at an institution that uh, a lot of our funding um, goes through to uh, medicine, medicine research that, you know, always helps you make sleep well at night. Um, it's understanding what really, yeah, what I was making an impact on in the field and who seemed to be picking up that research, I think also helped with that. 
Um, so it was, what was really interesting, I guess I was junior faculty before the pandemic hit and then sort of mid-career faculty after the pandemic. And so while I guess for most senior scholars, they had that period of transition between the person trying to find the Corey C. Millers of the world um, and then people coming up to you. For me, that was literally just pre-pandemic and after pandemic. And that was a really weird feeling. And so in that space, it was a little bit of, oh, okay, this is what I'm being um, recognized for. And a lot of it was servant leadership. And this is what people want to um, speak to me about. The other, the other part of that was this realization that you sort of start to get handed a field um, that it's almost like a baton's being passed. And I think at the last Academy Management Conference, I was sitting down and just, and we just finished a workshop, um, a PDW on servant leadership. And then that real sort of feeling that, oh, gee, no, we're actually now responsible for this field. And it's interesting that in terms of that research for identity, it wasn't something that I was discovering or trying to look for. It was something that I uh, just sort of stumbled upon across the way and sort of just, as I said, I think the easiest way to describe it was just, here's this baton, are you, you going to pick it up or not? You know, you've started to do work in this space, this field needs to continue to go on. Um, so I don't think that there is an easy answer to this, Lauren. I don't think that there is a, a clear paint by numbers how you build that sort of research identity. I think for some people are going to find it really easy. For others, it might be something that's 10, 20, 30 years in the making. Um, but I can say, you know, when, when it kind of hits you and you, you'll, you'll know. So I love that you share that because it makes me think there's got to be some tie to your actual identity. So like I think about when I first started in my PhD program, I, I was like, oh, I'm going to talk about women's leadership. And I went to my mentor and I was like, oh, I'm going to talk about women's leadership. And he's like, okay. And like, what about it? And he was like, you know, j- like at a certain point, um, you don't want to only study kind of this one silo. Like you want to look and see if what you're really interested in it. And he's like, and I know you, I know it's more than just women's leadership. He's like, kind of what else is in there? And he was kind of pushing me. And so my research interest kind of stemmed from my positionality, like where I was in that space and all of that. And so I wonder for you, like how much of your research or identity like trickles into your, your actual identity. Like I know you are uh, cisgender, you are a white person, like, you know, even though you're in our US base, you're international person, but like, kind of how does all of that come together in, in what you study? Uh, it's a really, really good question. Uh, I think that it, it, it definitely plays a role because uh to a certain extent if we look at and if we look at something like servant leadership for example it was created by a white male in um robert greenleaf uh and it has been essentially perpetuated um through uh, through business schools um through a lot of people who look and act like me one of the criticisms that helena Liu puts forward around servant leadership is uh, who gets to be seen as a servant leader and who gets to be seen simply as a servant and that has really gendered and um, racial implications um so there is a natural part of the sort of the research identity this research is me search identity that i can pick up some of these topics that are say mainstream sorry i'm using air quotes on a podcast mainstream um researcher topics because i fit into that but i also think it's then important for me in terms of the research teams that i work with the people that i work with in the conversation that i try and push to try and push it 
into these different spaces. Um, I've really enjoyed working, um, looking at leadership education from multiple different angles and pushing back on our prototypical types of leadership education. Um, acknowledging that there's a lot of privilege in being able to do that. Um, there's a lot of privilege in me being um, being a, cis, a cisgendered white able-bodied man, being able to say, hey, listen, we should do leadership education differently um, because it's not inclusive uh, as someone who's already in, on the inside rather than from the outside trying to break in. Um, and I also understand that for a lot of that, there's a lot of things that I'm, I'm not going to understand, that there is going to be a lot of... Um, that while I try and listen, learn um, from those around me, there's a lot of forms of oppression within leadership, within the academy, um, within research more general, that are absolutely invisible to me. Um, and so working with a lot of scholars and trying to help and develop and build um, uh, scholars up in those particular areas is incredibly important. And it's something that's on all of us as researchers. Um, to be able to help, and I know we've moved away from identity, I apologise, um, to, be, to be able to help build the field because we're a better field for having everyone in it. Um, we're a better field from having lots of different ideas and if leadership education is going to move forward, it has to move forward in a much more diverse way than we have it at the moment. Yeah, so so I appreciate all of, of what you shared. You're right. It's one of those, just because I belong to this identity doesn't mean I actually agree or disagree. It's like I'm kind of carving this space with, within that. Um, and, and I love that you shared that. Like one of the things I do in my spare time, more air quote spare time, is I work with coaches of color in professional organizations. And one of the things they always say is, oh, I'm a servant leadership. And then what they describe, a servant leader, what they describe isn't servant leadership. And I'm like, okay, so it's like, so two things. There's like, the practical use or like the descriptive, like the description of it versus the theory and research and the, the thousands of journal articles about it. But then there's also the lens of um, being seen as a servant and historically, where does that go? Especially as you're trying to put yourself in leadership roles of million dollar organizations or clubs or teams. And so uh, having those conversations and then having scholars that are aware of those nuances can help as you're pushing this agenda or pushing your agenda forward can help kind of clarify that space and, and maybe offer more research to, to delineate. Like I, I think about that oftentimes with servant leadership, even with authentic leadership, like, oh, he's an authentic leader. And, and it's, I, I speak my mind. And it's like, that's authenticity. That's not, you know, Aviolo's work. Uh, you know, but, but also recognizing we live in this academic space. There's a whole kind of practical world out there that, that uses it in a totally different way. So I appreciate the the identity conversation very much. Thanks. And just to launch from there, um, it's the importance of large co-author teams and co-author teams that you go across across different um, uh, across different spheres, across um, different identities, across different um, different countries. So, as my question for you too, if if uh, if you will, is. Um, Dan talked earlier about reaching out to Corey, Corey C. Miller. Um, what's your advice then for, uh, for scholars who are trying to build those co-author relationships? What have you found has worked in your life? Do you want me to go first? <laughs> Lauren's nodding her head at me. Um, you, can, you can go period because Lauren has not published. This is the closest I get to publishing anything in life. So you got it, Dan. This is all you. You're too kind. It's funny because the next thing I wanted to ask you about, Nathan, was, you know, a little bit about, you know, how you've been successful managing some of these multiple 
projects. And one of the things you shared with um, with my grad students, and thank you again for that that workshop, was you had co-authored with 75 plus different folks. And I think about, as I reflect on my career as, as an academic, which probably, I mean, you know, I really kind of dove in 2009, 2010, ramping up for like my first ILA conference, which was in 2010 in Boston. And um, starting to volunteer, I really took the kind of volunteer for associations route was my was my journey for many reasons. One of the biggest ones being that people were so generous, authentic, and kind to me when I came to my first conferences that I wanted to pay that forward. And so I I thought, well, how can I do that? I can take on volunteer roles in some of these associations. And lo and behold, there I am hanging out with some of the journal editors and some of the and board members and, and folks that were not only uh, institution builders, but also thought leaders, right? And so, and these folks, you know, we get to talking about shared interests and that would proliferate into writing opportunities, co-presenting opportunities, research projects. And and I really am grateful for for all those experiences. And I think the network that I've established as a result. Um, and I've also observed similar to what, what you were sharing, Nathan, around, I and I've written about this too um, in the Journal of Leadership Education, that I've definitely seen an evolution of diversity in all its forms in our field, but most specifically in the last like five to seven years, who I guess the diversity that you can see has evolved in leadership education spaces quite a bit when I go to conferences or leadership education spin in the last five to seven years. And, you know, I, I, I did, just because I look a certain way or have a certain background, like, doesn't mean that um, I agree with all the things that um, are associated with the stereotype, right? And so, and I really appreciate that you, how you shared that um, with with my students too. And and just kind of putting that out there that like, if you look at me, you look at Nathan, you know, we, we fit a lot of stereotypes of white, male, if we share that we're, you know, cisgender or what, whatever other things that we're willing to share. But there are other layers of that identity that maybe we do or don't share, depending on how close we feel with people. And some of those things can have a significant impact on how we see the world and also taking our own personal risks, but also authentic risks to reach out to people and say, I'd like to know more about how did you make meaning in this space? I mean, I love the conversations that Lauren and I are able to have because of the of the different ways that experiences that we had growing up and the different types of uh, folks that were brought into our lives based on our background and and whether it be religious or ethnic or cultural or whatever. I, I think that that had an impact. I know it did for me on why I chose to study leadership and also why I've been so open to work with anybody that is passionate about leadership education. That's the most important thing is, do we share that interest? Because it's a community, right? And so as that just really rings true to me, I guess that kind of, I don't know how that answers your question, Nathan, because I still want to ask you about managing multiple projects, but... I'll add one of the things I feel like with Dan, with us is we have some of our best conversations off the mm -hmm, off the mm -hmm. podcast. Um, and I feel like there's insight that we both provide that I, I wish other folks would would get and would have that experience. And so like Nathan, like when we were, you know, doing our research for the episode, looking at the fact that you co-authored with so many different people and even thinking back to the original episode that we had you on, um, you know, it, it's it's incredibly important to surface those those voices. And I, I feel like it's there. So some of the things you've been intentional about you can see it without even kind of meeting you, you know, so it's very, it's, it's pretty cool. 
Yeah, I think the only, I think the last thing I'd love just to get maybe a a little bit of advice from Nathan before we we wrap up is, you know, you did mention, and I love, you know, how you kind of engaged uh, Laura and I in this in this dialogue too around being willing and open to writing with 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 whomever shares the passion for for the scholarship and advancing the field, right? How do you feel you've been successful managing multiple projects and managing, uh, and perhaps as part of that, maybe managing the different personalities and multiple personalities if you're on a writing team? Because some of your most cited articles have been with two or three or four authors or more, and that's no small potatoes, right? Thanks, Ed. Thanks, Aaron. I I like using uh, Excel's Google Sheets. Uh, any. I'm meticulously well planned in terms of who's writing what, when that necess- when we're looking at having that done, who's going to do the review of that section, uh, and the like. So I try and make sure that that is me- as meticulously planned as possible if I'm managing um, particular projects. So generally, if I'm first or second author, I might be managing that that project. Um, with the co-authors. It's a lot of trying to find people that you work really well with and can help, you can help them and they um, they can help you. I look at people uh, through my career, Gary Schwartz, Ching Yao, um, Alex Newman, who had access to data that I just never was going to get. And so those three have just been re- really been able to help me in my career and be able to uh, go for me to take ideas to them and say, hey, listen, this is what I want to do. And like, yeah, yeah, sure thing. We'll find a company for you. So I've been very grateful in that. Um, the other the other part of that is I've been lucky enough to work with some of the significant names in the leadership field. So people like Susan Murphy, uh, Kevin Lowe, Robert Lydon, Dirk Van Derendonk. When I've contacted them and all of them I did via cold contact. Um, I had met Kevin once before. Um, Bob, I had said hi to him at a conference. Everyone else I was um, as a cold contact. Uh, I contacted them early on in the article's formation saying, this is the specific role I want you to play in this article. This is what the article is going to do. And this is the specific role. Um, and for the most part, everyone that I've asked has been able to sign on, has ended up signing on because it was specific and generally luckily at the right time. Where I've said no to projects that have come to me and um, same with others is where like a project might be done. So someone will email me saying, oh, you know, we've written this article. If you, you know, you come on and edit this, uh, you know, you can come on as a co-author. There's no creative process for me there. There's no ability for me to help shape that particular article. Um, so while I'm happy to give feedback on the article and I, and I will, uh, it's not something that I want to, I, I don't feel like I've been a co-author in, in that space. So, uh, approaching co-authors, just being just being very specific about what you want them to do, the ta- what the article is going to achieve. Timelines are usually quite good. Just saying, you know, look, um, whether it's for a special issue, which is always really nice because it's contained. Um, uh, how we're going to achieve it and um, how the work's going to be divvied up. That's a really good way to get senior co-authors really um, really excited about a particular project. Just like if you're a PhD student and you're trying to um, suggest a project to another faculty member. They're all faculty members. They've all had good projects pitched to them, they've all had bad projects pitched to them. Um, it's, you know, it, it, it's part of that. In terms of managing the personalities, um, you just go back to all the things that we learned in uh, around leadership, right? 
communication is key. Uh, you know, that what that spending one-on-one -on -one time, the developmental side, you know, um, clear goals, clear vision, uh, rewards if it, if it needs to be, <laughs> what, you know, whatever those particular things are, and just knowing these people and uh, knowing the people quite well. Um, I think at, especially early on in your career, you can get caught up in really large author teams where you're doing the majority of the work um, and there are a lot of free writers. Um, while there are no doubt a lot of those people out there, a lot of that time is because we take all that pressure ourselves. Um, so I was talking to a co-author yesterday on a piece and he's like, oh, uh, you know, when are you going to ask me to, you know, when, when are you going to ask me to do something? I, I want to do more. I'm like, oh, geez, you know, I, I do still forget uh, that everyone is in this career for a reason that people, no matter how senior they are, they still love writing. They still love getting involved in that research process and they still want to have a tangible impact on that piece of research that you're, that you're doing. And so making sure that continuously com communicating with them, you know, is there area, you know, do you have more time here? Do you want, do you want to do a little bit more? You know, what role do you want to play on this particular paper? Um, having those open and honest conversations is a, is a really, really good way. And just because somebody has said no once, it doesn't mean that they're not going to say no again. But I guess after you bug them three times and they say no, probably a good, uh, good choice to stop barking up that tree and go find me, <laughs> go find another, another and better co-author. What great advice. I wonder if last, last question before we say thank you, is there anything else that you feel like you can share? Like I said, you dropped so, you shared so many good pieces of advice and I appreciate like the details of some of the things that you've shared, which is really important. Anything else that you'd like to share before we, we share our gratitude? The only thing that I would say is that you can get all the best advice in the world. If you do not have time to write, it is all wasted. Um, just making sure that you're finding those spaces to write, finding what is the, your best time to write, um, even if it's bad writing. As I keep saying to my PhD students, just, just bad write. Just write terrible stuff on a page, and that's okay because that's, that's better than nothing and something might stick. Um, if we don't have time to write, we can't do the rest of it. That's really, really great advice, and my chair has been saying that to me regularly. And so it's good to hear that, that I like that the tiger time concept you talk about, like be protective of the time that you have and just kind of put anything out there is so, so, so important. Yeah. Thanks for dropping just so much knowledge on us today and so grateful for the work that you're doing and being willing to, to pay it forward as well and then share it with, with us and our, my grad students during your Fulbright and, and our listeners again. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Definitely appreciate your comments and your contributions to growing the body of scholarship and, and our field and um, best of luck as you continue your work this spring and looking forward to, to seeing you at LEA in uh, Minnesota at the uh, end of July. Thank you so much. And just, yeah, as a, uh, as a plug, our leadership education Academy is in Minnesota this year. Looking forward to seeing you all there. I'm going to go hang out in the parking lot. <laughs> <laughs> All right, y'all. That's a wrap. Do you connect with leadership educators virtually? Please follow us on social media. Search the Leadership Educator Podcast on LinkedIn to find our page. And find us on Twitter at Lead Educator Pod for episode release information, show notes, and upcoming events. You can connect with me on Twitter at Dr. Underscore Leadership. And Lauren is at M-R-S-L-A-U-R-J-B. That's Miss 
Laura JB. You can find the episodes wherever podcasts are available. We also encourage you to please subscribe at theleadershipeducator.com and rate us five stars as the more you rate us, the easier it is for others to find us. We'd like to thank the James M. Cox Jr. Institute for Journalism, Innovation, Management, and Leadership within the Grady College of Journalism and Mass Communication at the University of Georgia. The support was facilitated by Dr. Keith Herndon, William S. Morris Chair in News Strategy and Management. And our wonderful theme music was composed, performed, and mixed by Dr. Matt White, trumpeter, composer, and associate professor and chair of jazz studies at the University of South Carolina. Check him out at mattwhitejazz.com. Matt, thank you so much for sharing your musical genius with our audience. And finally, we are grateful for the support of two professional associations that are destinations for leadership educators, the Association of Leadership Educators and the International Leadership Association. ALE, which funded the start of the podcast, continues to promote our mission of continuing conversations with leadership professionals. Check out all that ALE has to offer at leadershipeducators.org. The global reach of the ILA has helped us to expand our listenership beyond our original borders. Check out the ILA's programs and resources at ilaglobalnetwork.org.